Robbie Mueller captures perfectly the light and color of a northern European city in winter. You can almost feel the damp and cold in your bones. There's a verse from director and member of Jesus and Mary Chain, Douglas Hart. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or a cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Moroni, and today we're talking about The American Friend. This is the first time we're doing a cinematographer in focus, so although these films are directed by different people, we're talking about them through the lens of Robbie Mueller's cinematography. So quick synopsis of the film. Tom Ripley, who deals in forged art, suggests a picture framer he knows would make a good hitman. The film stars Dennis Hopper as Tom Ripley, Bruno Ganz as Jonathan Zimmerman, Lisa Cruiser as Marianne Zimmerman, and Gérard Blain as Royal Minot. It's written by Vin Vendors, based on the novel by Patricia Highsmith, cinematography by Rami Mueller, edited by Peter Pisgada, and music by Jürgen Nieper. So today my guest is Peter Merriman. Peter and I have known each other for a good 10 years now at this point. You know, we've seen quite a few films together and we've actually seen this film together in a cinema. And I just really respect his enthusiasm about the films that he loves and the filmmakers he loves. So I'm very excited to have him on. So thank you so much, Peter, for joining the show today. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be on this podcast. I'd love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your relationship is to cinema and specifically the films that Robbie Mueller has worked on. I guess I'm sort of an amateur film enthusiast. I liked films growing up and then I think started maybe thinking about them more seriously as an adult, but still in a very amateurish way. But I think I, I, I've been lucky to be friends with or know a lot of people who have more professional or academic relationships with film, where they're critics or filmmakers or writers or studied film studies like yourself. And so I've, uh, like, you know, a lot of other stuff in my life, I've just learned a lot from the people I've been around. Yeah, like you said, we've uh, seen some films and this film together. What about with Mueller's work himself? Do you recall when you started noticing his style of work and the first films of his you've seen? So I... I think something good about him, I, I should start off by saying I know very little about him. Mm -hmm. It's okay. But that something I like about him going over his discography is that his work seems to be in service of the director. And mm -hmm. so when you read about him, people say, okay, he uses natural light, this or that. But I, I think that his style, like th this film, uh, The American Friend and Breaking the Waves, you wouldn't necessarily think that they're shot by the same person. I don't think. No, or I agree. his work with Jeremy Shubin. I think he's got like certain stylistic choices, but like you said, he's very much in service of the director. You never feel like, oh, this is a Robbie Mueller film. It's more so he's always trying to work with yeah. the story itself. He's never trying to overpower. It's just that his photography is so beautiful. That's why you notice it. It is, but in different ways, which I like. Yeah. I, I think Deacon's is a bit like that sometimes because he's worked so much with the Coens, you think of one way, but his other stuff, either is more commercial stuff or uh, some other stuff he's done is different, I think, mm -hmm. for better and worse. 
to me, the, this is beautiful film that's not so beautiful that it distracts from the story. The sort of form seems to suit the content. Well, I, I think this this film was really well done. I agree. So, good choice. Oh, thank you. I, I don't know if the listener needs to know this, but we, <laughs> I, and then you, chickened out of doing uh, Breaking the Waves. Yes, very much. To be honest, I was totally grateful. I mean, as much as I, it's one of the few Montreal that I think I could rewatch, but mm-hmm. it's not one that you're excited to rewatch. Do you watch the other two, the TV show? No. With Drew Tarver, his character plays an actor in it, and he's on a phone with an agent trying to get, or he's impersonating someone, but he's trying to get a role for someone. And he said, oh yeah, he loves these roles with a lot of trom trom in them. <laughs> like for trauma oh God. think of breaking the waves as a trauma trauma movie now a bit yes i i've said in past episodes that typically i give the guest their it's their choice of film but i do have to put my foot down for some of them and for when it came to mueller i was like i am not doing dancer in the dark like i mm. cannot rewatch that i would rather watch the american friend any day i i think i find breaking the waves harder to watch than dancer in the dark for some reason Oh, yeah. Although Dancer in the Dark, I'm almost never late for movies. And I got to Dancer in the Dark right at the beginning. And I was like, okay, I'll find my seat like as soon as, Mm -hmm. you know, the brightness of the image starts. Mm -hmm. And it it starts with a blacked out screen for like the first two minutes or something as foreshadowing, I guess. Not the best film to find a seat in a theater at the beginning of. No. Let's get into the tagline for this film. It's very straightforward. So the tagline for The American Friend is transforms Patricia Highsmith's Ripley's game into a gripping European noir. So I think this tagline, it's specifically for a poster. So it's probably The American Mm -hmm. Friend transforms. It's not very showy. Some of the other taglines I've read for other films are much more interesting this is just factual. So a few facts about the film. Dennis Hopper and Bruno Gans did not initially get along and they actually got into a fist fight on set. But after a night of drinking, the two returned to the set with their differences settled. <laughs> they have great chemistry in this film, I find. Absolutely. You know, they're acting. So who knows? But I feel like they seem like they had been friends for a long time. So it's interesting to read that they actually kind of hate each other at the beginning. Sometimes that bonds the best type of friendships. It sort of mirrors the relationship in the film. Mm-hmm. where uh, there's sort of conflict and sliding and social awkwardness at first and then quite a meaningful, palpable bond between the two. Another fact is when vendors went to go pick up Hopper at the airport, he had super long hair, was unshaven and was dressed in military gear because Hopper had directly flown from the Apocalypse Now set and didn't even bother to change. <laughs> vendors was... A little shocked when he saw him because that didn't, you know, correspond to the character that he had in mind. Hopper's an interesting choice for Ripley. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's an obvious one, but he's so good in this movie. That ties into another fact because Vendors actually wanted Cassavetes for the role. When Cassavetes turned it down, he actually suggested Hopper for this role. It's funny when you watch it at first, especially if you've seen other Ripley films. Mm-hmm. And this is maybe the third one you're seeing, or it's a little off-putting the way he plays him because it's not, you know, he's not the Anna Dinal, the Matt Damon. 
style. Mm-hmm. And because he's Dennis Hopper, he's a little creepy. So you're kind of like, oh, this, this, is, this is a choice, but it works. He has the, when I think of Ripley, and I haven't read the books, but I have seen those films you mentioned, and uh, the Malkovich version of this story, Ripley's Game, he has the charisma, I think, that's so important to Ripley. And yeah. also the insecurity that I think is important to Ripley that uh, Matt Damon does pretty well. I think, too, that there's sort of this two sides of a coin of sort of the bravado and the insecurity takes a while to settle in but hopper is so good at that in this film oh yeah it does definitely take a little while but once it does you get into it because when you first see him you're not you're trying to understand what he's doing to be honest and then once you get kind of those monologues from him whether he's talking to himself or he's talking to zimmerman then you kind of understand okay this is who he is and this is what his deal is i'll never say no to a dennis hopper inclusion in a film i feel like maybe i haven't seen him in that many films because and i certainly hadn't seen him recently and i was just i mean this is not an original statement or anything but he's so good in this like he's yeah just such a good actor really it's such a great performance to have these sort of two sides of bravado and sort of this I guess, chutzpah in a way. And then the insecurity and being kind of pricked by these social slights, Mm -hmm. perhaps out of his already feeling uncomfortable in certain societies and certain classes, being an imposter. Very much. And we'll we'll get into a bit more of, of Hopper as well, because I definitely, despite the fact that's a performance section, but I think that it's really important to talk about what he did. If you want to talk about a couple more actors in this film, there's actually eight movie directors that are cast in this film. I can only think of two. So I knew of three of them, or I guess technically four, because Hopper is also a director. Mm-hmm. But the other ones are ones that you don't, I didn't personally know of beforehand. So this is just the research. So the eight are Dennis Hopper, mm-hmm. Samuel Fuller, mm-hmm. Nicholas Ray, and Jean Eustache. Did you know Jean Eustache was in it? No, I, I don't know who that is. What is he directed? I think his biggest one is The Mother and the Whore. Okay, haven't seen it. And then Gérard Blain, who plays the Frenchman who sets the whole deal up. He's also right. a director. And then the other three are Rudolf Schindler, Peter Lithenthal, and then Daniel Schmidt. So they're probably lesser known. Know, they're more European directors. They're lesser known, but vendors was good friends with them. And they'd been actors as well. So he cast them all in criminal roles. But as outside of Hopper, the two big ones that you see are Fuller and Nicholas Ray. And I want to save the Nicholas Ray talk for once we get into the film, because uh, I'm sure we both have a lot to say about Nicholas Ray. Just another last quick fact was that the gun that Bruno Gantz carries in the train station scene Mm -hmm. was actually a real gun because they couldn't afford a fake gun for the film. So I'd like to get into just the film itself and, you know, the story and Mueller's work on it. So one of the first points I wanted to discuss was the rewatchability of the film. So we've both seen this now more than once. And I don't know how you felt about it the first time you watched this film, but I remember being kind of confused, right? There's a lot going on and vendors purposely didn't include parts of the story because he was leaving it up to the audience to fill the gap. And I remember not being as taken with the film, remembering the visual aspects of it and it being 
gorgeous to look at and the performances, but the story itself didn't take with me. But then rewatching it for this, I loved this movie because I was able to focus on stuff as opposed to being like, what's happening? Trying to work out plot. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So for you who's seen it also more than once, how do you feel about rewatching? Is this something that you find that's rewatchable? Or did you kind of get it in the first watch? Or how does it hold up to multiple watches? Yeah, I think I... I was able to watch it okay in the first watch. I generally knew the plot. It, it doesn't follow it exactly, but I had seen a Ripley's Game a while ago. But yes, I, I agree with you on the rewatchability. I think I like rewatching films anyway. Sometimes you're just trying to keep up with the plot the first watch, or you're blown away by this one performance the first time. But I love being able to rewatch films. And this time, obviously, we were both paying maybe more attention to the cinematography, Mm -hmm. but also just noticing the soundtrack a bit more, noticing the score more this time, I think, for me. The acting, I, I, I think I was able to appreciate a bit more this time. And the plot mechanics i guess the way that it's formatted it's i guess you could say it's an art director making a genre film Mm -hmm. or a very artfully made genre film almost meta given the casting and stuff and he's Mm -hmm. sort of putting his money where his mouth is where he's saying you know i i want to make this film and i appreciate these people who also make artful melodramas westerns noir films and it's got that sort of cinematech or what i think of as cinematech or ia top 10 yeah appreciation of american film and an american genre film in particular in it uh that i really admire i think the film's dedicated to uh, one of the co-founders of the cinematech but i I remember thinking oh this would for sure be in ia top 10 because they put you know ray and fuller in that but they uh apparently for i don't know if this is in editorial issue or what but they didn't do those lists during the 70s they they stopped in the late 60s and then started again in either late 70s early 80s i think so um i'm sure it was well reviewed or i imagine mm-hmm. it was well reviewed but there wasn't a top 10 list the year that this came out yeah that's unfortunate i mean this was his kind of breakthrough in terms of vendors and mueller uh his breakthrough into american you know audiences so whether people liked it or not it seems to have you know struck a note of some sort there is a point that you mentioned earlier about the city because this takes place in different cities and sometimes it's hard to kind of differentiate which city they're in you have to kind of follow the story very closely but what you said was that the city never or that the imagery of the cities never overpowers the story. And I totally agree because the way he shoots the city backdrop is just kind of the way you would view the city you're living in. It's not to marvel at it. It's more so to be like, this is the setting they're in. And sometimes it looks ugly. Sometimes it looks beautiful. There are shots of the cities that they're in. Things don't look great because that's Mm -hmm. just factual. And sometimes it looks beautiful because those are factual. So in terms of the way he shoots cities and sometimes they're not distinctive, how do you feel about the way they move through the cities and the way they're shot? Because I think it is an important part of the story and the visuals, despite the fact that it's not the star. It's not like those cities are the characters on themselves, like they might be in other films. Yeah. 
It's the cities are great. The uh, a thought that popped into my head is the way he shoots Paris almost reminded me of Trouble Every Day, a film that you've done on this podcast before. I think this film's Paris is a little bit recognizable in mm-hmm. uh, Trouble Every Day. And as far as the German cities, I, I this is terrible, but I forget the name of the city that it's in a northern Germany. Yeah, I think they're in the Hamburg. Hamburg, and then they go down to the south kind of mm-hmm. uh for one of the the second job i think but yeah it's a mix of kind of the frame shop looks so nice yeah and the way that the auction is shot is really this is getting more into cinematography i guess is so interesting to me because it's this sort of bright light that you don't really see in the rest of the film so mm-hmm. much of this film either actually takes place at night or looks like it takes place at night because it's in a dingy frame shop, even though it's taking place during the day. And the auction to me almost had a documentary feel to it because the the light was so bright that it almost had the effect of making it look like digital film, even though this was being shot in the 70s to me. But yeah, this, the cities were really interesting to me. And I, I agree with you that they were a combination of dingy and beautiful and i think that that those are sort of themes in this film and the way that they move in the city is almost like i don't know if you ever see a rat in the film or anything yeah but i was kind of thinking of kind of like feeling their presence off screen in a way and the Mm -hmm. ripley's house in this this sort of abandoned mansion that looks like a section of the white house uh, (laughs) i guess is like representing his nationality or whatever feels like there would be rats all over the place and he's kind of moving around like a rat a bit dennis hopper and he's getting bruno gantz to go down and sort of not the gutter but the sunken area at the side of the house maybe this could tie to moving the discussion towards color in the film which is something else i'd be curious what your thoughts on that are for me and you've mentioned this also it's kind of like a noir it's uh i don't know if we want to use the term neo-noir if we're just going to use noir it's a noir that's in color you got the grittiness of a noir and you've got the thematic elements of a noir And I think, like you said, there's kind of a seediness to the coloring. And sometimes it's aggressive and it's harsh, the lighting. And with one of the Mueller tropes is kind of the the neon lighting. So you see it in like restaurants on the, the streets. You see it in the subway lighting. The underground subway lighting is harsh. And then even one of my favorite scenes, and it comes up a couple of times where uh, Ripley plays pool. There's the Canada Dry sign and that neon light, light coming down. Absolutely. It's, it's beautiful, but it's also ugly and it's harsh. And it ties into those noir elements that are like noir films are supposed to be kind of ugly and gritty, despite the fact that they are also beautiful with those shadows. Mm-hmm. So thematically, it's a noir. Visually, it's a noir. I'm just going to read a quick quote from Roger Ebert Please. when he talks about the colors of this film. Oh, great. So he said, and the look of the film is hypnotic. The brashness and deepness of the colors, the exaggeration of lighting and setting, the extraordinary subtlety of some of the scenes and the aggressive, cheap and garish look of others. So it's just a little snippet of him talking about how the film moves from city to city and the coloring that's used there. But because Mueller uses natural lighting, he's just taking those elements out of the cities without trying to make them uglier than they are. It's just showing 
how cities are lived in, right? So the colors of those, their surroundings. So how do you feel about the use of natural light in this and the colors coming through to represent different areas of the city, different people in the film? Yeah, I think it's brilliant. And there's so many aspects to it, I think, that you could talk about. One of the things was I just, as a sort of lay person, I was like, how is he doing this? Because, you know, you see these films, he seems to do both this natural light and the sort of garish neon. Mm -hmm. But sometimes he almost does them in the same shot where Mm -hmm. this isn't necessarily neon light, but there are shots in the back room of the frame shop where there's like this Vermeer-ish natural light coming in from the front left of the screen and then there's artificial lights so it's like it's beautiful and interesting i guess Mm -hmm. and this is sort of like a grade nine essay thesis type of (laughs) observation but i i think in so many ways i mean the main characters maybe being the obvious ones but that it's a film of contrasts and sort of these if not outright opposites very different things the extrovert the introvert the american the german all of these things and i think that that's echoed in Mueller cinematography and the natural light and the artificial light in the same shot, I think, is so interesting. Also, within the night shots, Canada Dry is a good example yes. of this. There are these contrasting colors. Uh, sometimes, I mean, in the case of Canada Dry, actual office with the red and the green. Mm-hmm. And there's often hot and cold colors, which both tend to be, I would say, oversaturated. I don't know what the film processing techniques that Mueller uses are, or whether they tried to kind of punch them up or whether he's capturing them naturally. But it it reminded me of uh, some of Christopher Doyle's kind of Wong Kar Wai collaborations, Mm. where there's red and green on screen, and there's blue and yellow, and there's you know, orange and blue, where there's these hot, hot and cold colors in opposite, really kind of pushing up against each other, creating this tension, mm-hmm. uh, like Hopper and Gantz in the film. And I think he does that so well without it ever becoming uh, what I would call coffee table cinematography, where it's kind of decorative or beautiful for beauty's sake. Uh, like I said earlier on, I, I think that these contrasts are thematically relevant and are a source of visual interest, but don't distract from the film rather than distract. Like they, they add to the depth of the film and they are beauty or ugliness. Yes. And that's something he, through my research of him and spending this month diving into his work, he's always very, you know, adamant about being like i never want my imagery to be the star you know Mm. i am just i'm photographing and i'm being told what to photograph the way i do it might be a certain way but it's not supposed to be kind of like your instagram picture perfect style movie it's just that we view it so beautifully but that was not his goal and i think he does it well because like you said some of his films are more visually striking than others but then something like a breaking the waves yes the landscapes are beautiful but i'm so focused on everything else that the cinematography doesn't necessarily stick out as much because it's doing so well to the story the cinematography is maybe giving you front row seats or better access 
do mm-hmm. other things that in turn distract you from the cinematography. So the effectiveness is maybe more subliminal in breaking the waves. I think that's that's a perfect way to to capture what he does. And just a quote from himself in terms of that, he says, the magic of the film image depends upon the viewer believing in the reality of the light. When we were talking about the neon and the harshness there, because I think, especially now with the way cinema is, and we know that everything's kind of color corrected and post or it's like it's artificial lighting. What his goal is, is just to be like, this is real lighting that's achievable and you just have to believe in that being a fact on screen. Yeah, and it's probably, there should probably be credits, I guess, to the director or the set designers Mm -hmm. or prop masters too, because they're finding these things to put together that will have this tension color-wise. I think there was a yellow raincoat, maybe Bruno Gantz's child wears at one point Mm -hmm. too, and there's this sort of dreary German cityscape, and this coat sticks out. It's almost like the red coat. Yeah, don't look broke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Any any child in a raincoat is always going to... In the shadow of Rogue. One other point that I want to talk about, because it's actually interesting that you mentioned, you know, set design and people who you know are the location scouts and all that, because that ties together so well. And that's another reason, as a side note, why I want to do, because most of the podcasts focus on directors and sometimes I do cinematographers. Eventually, I, I might move into other things because I just think it's so important to credit everyone mm-hmm. involved. To move on from that, the, the framing of a lot of shots is beautiful to me. And the one that sticks out that I do want to mention, and I'll ask you what some of your uh, favorite shots are, but there's one in the frame shop where Zimmerman holds up like a broken frame to beautiful. himself. Yeah. Or he, is it when he's making it? Is it after he breaks the frame or is it when he has the two sides and he's trying to fit the angle? Yeah. When he has the two sides and you see him in the middle, I just, that stuck out to me, especially in this watch. And I love the framing of that. And there's another scene also, I believe it's just after he shot the first first man in the subway and he gets outside and he escapes outside and the camera is on top is looking yeah. over and it kind of drifts over to his side and it just is just so beautiful and it's one of those few moments that you you're kind of outside of them well, and both of those are an absolute service of the moment in the film the character the relationships between the character where there are all these he shoots the guy in the last shot that you're talking about there are all these tight shots of the um surveillance camera on the subway it's so good the way that i don't know how they did this and it's all at the time it's probably all uh, closed circuit television or something and and the Mm -hmm. camera's sort of panning it's almost comical the way the camera's panning from left to right across the surveillance cameras and he's just going on everyone looking like a complete (laughs) maniac who's just shot someone the exact opposite of what he's been instructed to do but then when he gets out of the station, there's this sense of like uh, relief from the claustrophobia and the camera pans out. And similarly, in that other great shot, it's like he's puzzling over the frame in a way and trying to get this just right. But it's early on in his relationship with Dennis Hopper, and he doesn't mm-hmm. know what to make of him, I don't think. He feels this sort of simultaneous attraction and repulsion from this character. I think he's presented as sort of this very meticulous, logical sort of German craftsman. 
And I think at that moment in the film that the angles don't really make sense to him, that uh, things are not aligning for him in his mind. And he's a bit confused about this while he's holding the frame like that. Yeah, it's it's so good, I think. It's one of those films where I think just everything comes together so effortlessly. A- another shot I do want to talk about, you know, your final sequence on the beach mm. and as you said, most of this is in the darkness, or it's at least inside and it looks mm-hmm. dark. We're not getting too many day shots. This one, it's kind of like harsh the way it flips all of a sudden it's daytime, but it's just so beautiful in the wide shot on the beach. Yeah, it's just gorgeous. So how do you feel about how that works for the story? Because it's kind of an ending to certain people, an ending to relationships, ending to lives, but a new beginning for others. So how that works visually. Yeah, I I think it works perfectly as a resolution. And uh, if we're talking in terms of light, it's like if a noir takes place at night, then maybe the end of the story is dawn or sunrise. And Mm -hmm. visually, of course, it's beautiful. But thematically, I, I think it's kind of like this new beginning for these people, for his wife, for their child. For Ripley, I think, in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that seems so interesting. I guess that's how I would feel about it in terms of a form and function discussion of the cinematography. Plot-wise, I think it's also so interesting because there's, at least on my part as a viewer, there's this confusion the whole time of... Mm-hmm. How, how sick is he? You know, they're yes. kind of gaslighting him this whole time, you think, about the severity of his diagnosis, his blood disease, is it cancer? What, what, what is it? Are the tests good or bad? Is his doctor okay? Or are the other things? I mean, they show them forging documents or stealing documents at one point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's being misled, but it's unclear. And then when he just straight up dies at the end, yeah, you're given a, just a bit of warning, maybe like 30 seconds. And you're like, shit, this is really going to happen. And I love that scene because like you said, there is a bit of warning, a bit of leeway where he's driving and he's kind of manic. His wife is like, what the fuck are you doing? You need to slow down. I think we're good. We don't need to be driving like this. And then you realize it clicks for you. You're like, oh, yeah, he's not going to make it past this. You're just waiting for him to roll the beetle. Yep, which he's driving like a maniac. No, it's a great scene. And oddly enough, that's not the actual final scene. So the final scene is we go back Mm -hmm. to the beginning, essentially, with Nicholas Mm -hmm. Ray. So I think this is a good time to bring him up quickly. I know it's not super relevant to Mueller, but it would be... A miss to not discuss Nicholas Ray and just how cool he looks, how great that you don't really have any info other than he's an artist who's pretending to be dead. He's selling his paintings, Ripley's selling them, and he's making more money because because he's dead, he's obviously worth more. The film opens up with Nicholas Ray. The film ends with him. He might actually be a forger. I'm not sure. Maybe this will require some fact-checking. I was reading about the books, and I think that the real artist commits suicide at some point. And in the credits, they put quotes around the name. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if Vendors changed it so that he's supposed to be the actual artist, but I think in the books, he is a forger. Okay. I haven't read the book. I I, I haven't either. 
sure. That is interesting. And I did wonder why there was the quotes around the name. And, you know, I did kind of read something about that in my research, but I think it's purposely unclear. I don't think this is covered in any of the films, but I think there was something about the real artist who was maybe involved with Ripley at some point, killing himself in Greece, and then the estate of the artist... Uh, I think mm-hmm. maybe here represented by the auctioneer who introduces Gantz and Hopper is in cahoots with Ripley to sell okay. pieces that they know aren't authentic on the market. That makes sense. That's another layer <laughs> to the story there. It's interesting. But yeah, I, I don't know about that last scene and it yeah. not ending on the beach or the highway. Yeah, I, I wonder about it. I mean, Rip, Ripley walking off into the distance sort of makes sense. It's it's almost uh-huh. like a Western ending, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, which makes sense with Ray in a way. It is weird that it goes back to him. And I didn't remember mm-hmm. that from my initial watch that it went back. I thought it ended just with them on the beach, which would have been a more than acceptable ending. So it is the, it, interesting why they cut him back into the film with him just kind of walking away yeah maybe vendors felt that that image was strong i think it was used on some of the posters because there are a couple when you were talking earlier about shots that you loved and this sort of perfect framing and you mentioned the wide shot coming out of the station and him working on Mm -hmm. the frame for hopper one of the ones i thought you were going to say is earlier in the film or at least not at the very end when i think he's talking to ray and they're just almost reciting poetry or these nonsense lines and he gets Mm -hmm. up and he just starts walking away on the edge of the overpass this sort of very high i was like he's clearly actually doing this and this looks very dangerous (laughs) and the camera pans up just high enough to get like a little bit of sky in between the tallest building and the top of the frame. And I thought, you know, this is such a nice image. And I don't know if maybe that image held some sway over Benders or Mueller, where they decided to repeat it at the end of the film. Maybe there's got to be some sort of significance for it. But I wonder if it's just something that is supposed to be just left up to the audience or if on another watch you understand it more i I, i'm not mad about it yeah maybe just just the sense that he's always traveling or that he's got more distance to go the road Mm -hmm. and the highway i guess is an image and theme that's very important to vendors before and after this film traveling i guess king of the road was before this is that right and he, yeah. What's the trilogy? Trilogy is all before, and then it continues on. You know, obviously your big one, Paris, Texas, and so on. So he is very much interested in the traveler along with the act of traveling. So maybe that was that, just kind of inserting his mm-hmm. his thing into and the end there. Stamp. It's cool having the the different directors. I do find that for me and this is just a me thing from the first time watching it i didn't realize which one was samuel mm-hmm. fuller and which one was nicholas ray because <laughs> they kind of look yeah alike right towards that part of their ray career where's the eye patch a bit mm-hmm. which kind of tips you off if you're familiar with his mm-hmm. biography sort of 
post most of his most well-known yeah. films. But yeah, they do look alike. I like Fuller's performance a bit more, maybe. Yeah. He doesn't seem like a good actor, but he's like really giving it <laughs> his kind of like psycho gangster best, which kind of works with his films, I think. It's always interesting to see a director put on a performance, whether it's big or small. Yeah. Some are better than others. Definitely. Some are actually good actors, you know, like your Dennis Hopper, although he started off as an actor. So you have that advantage. But I just always find it interesting, especially if you recognize the directors. And there's some people who watch these films who probably don't know any of these people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're just watching and they've never heard of, you know, Nicholas sure. Ray, Samuel Fuller. Or maybe they've seen Rebel Without a Cause and they don't realize the connection or yeah. even... I don't know, Johnny Guitar, Bigger Than Life, I guess, is on Criterion, too. Those are interesting performances. I guess we did talk a little bit about Hopper, his performance. Gans, I love his performance. It's so good. I love his look in it. His look is so good. There's a quietness to his performance. You can tell that he's the star of the film. Him and Hopper, obviously, are the stars. And the way they work together, I know we kind of talked about it, but they work so well, and they just... It's weird because it kind of becomes like a buddy movie at some point. Absolutely. With them traveling along. Absolutely. You never get that vibe at the beginning, but once it gets there, it's fun watching them. It's stressful. But the scene on the train when Hopper... When he slaps the guy unconscious. I love that scene too. Just the whole them working together and the stressed look on Gan's face because he's like, "Uh, I wasn't expecting to see you here and the way they work together. There is one quick thing I did want to mention. I can't remember if it's in that scene on the subway or the the train or if it's before, but at some point, because Hopper's wearing a, or Ripley, I should say, is wearing a cowboy hat the whole time. And he takes off his hat at some point and just reveals one of the worst haircuts I've ever seen in my entire life. Maybe ahead of its time. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I was like, I don't know if this is hat hair or it's just you. He's got like a good medium length, too. Yeah. Like they went simple with it, but it's it's clean cut. It's not what you, it's hard to imagine Ripley having hair that long, but Oh yeah. No. Especially cuz in the, Hopper is a good-looking enough guy, but he's not. You know, he's not an Adeno and he's not Matt Damon in his prime. He's more along the lines of the Malkovich where he's interesting to look yeah. at and you can't look away. Bruno Gans as well. Like I just love his look in it and the, the clothing that they put on him and just kind of his smirk on his face a lot of the times, mm-hmm. but the way that Mueller shoots him is in a kind of softer way. Absolutely. I find because you're supposed to root for him. You know that he's doing something bad, but you're supposed to root for him. And I, I, I don't know how you feel about his character and his motivations, but I'm rooting for him and that helps with the way he's shot. Yeah, I guess how do you feel about the way the camera is kind of sympathizing with his character? I like it. I'd I'd have to rewatch it to understand how that's working completely. But I I think the first scene you see him in, he's a bit more haughty, a bit more stuck up in a way. You see him at the beginning of this curve that sort of has a lot of factors in it, or at least two, his relationship with Hopper and his illness. I think he starts to go inside more and more. Like it's a very, it's a cliche, I guess, but an interior performance where 
he's retreating inside himself so much throughout the film and that this works so well with Hopper's very extroverted performance. And it's like Hopper Mm -hmm. is also having a hard time reading him uh, like the audience maybe is and is trying to impress him or make him laugh or win his approval. There's sort of a childish childlike quality to Hopper's insecurities, I think, uh, which is the other side of his sort of more sociopathic, manipulative, charismatic side of Ripley. And I I think that the best films, Ripley films have, and performances have both of those. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I I feel like throughout the film, Gantz sort of goes inside himself and then starts to come out again and when he comes out again it's a different more manic kind of bizarro dance the final scene on the highway where he's driving being the most striking example of that but also the mm-hmm. second job like he he seems to be more and more willing to participate in uh these labors maybe gets more and more almost enjoyment out of them. He seems to be learning maybe new things about himself in a way throughout the film. And that there's a mischievousness to his character and a glee, I guess, that you don't see at the beginning, near the end that Mm -hmm. he portrays very well. Like they're getting into capers together, sort of. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Even when the wife shows up at the end, it's kind of like it's already past the point of no return and they've just got to go for it in a way. And I think those qualities are brought out by Ripley, mm-hmm. whether you know Zimmerman wanted them to or not. He does develop a closeness and a, I guess, a comfort with mm-hmm. him. They also went through like something some at least for Zimmerman traumatic because he wasn't expecting that job to go down that way yeah on the train you know for him I guess he's like well Ripley's here to take care of me whether he has other motives or not I can trust Mm -hmm. him for now so it brings out the other sides of him so yeah and it's worth mentioning maybe especially later on in the film that it's funny yeah, it is. It's, you see the guy in the like body cast smoking in the back of an ambulance, and it's uh, there are funny parts to the film, and funny parts especially, I think, to uh, Hopper's performance. But for me, when it gets to that scene, not to compare it to other directors, but it felt like it was kind of out of a David Lynch scene, Absolutely. you know, where it's something serious or fucked up's happening, and it's like in the background. There's characters who are just as you said like in a full body cast (laughs) smoking in the back and you're like i don't know what's happening but this is also hilarious because it's supposed to be lynch or like season three of barry which is essentially also lynch (laughs) i love that you don't often see a funny side of vendors no maybe this is a good opportunity to discuss that but it's how many good films does he make after this well paris texas yeah I'm trying to get into more of his later stuff. I haven't finished that side of the filmography. I could see you liking Gabriel Byrne, right? Is, yeah. is he in the end of, is that, do I have that right? I saw this when I was like in high school or something. I can't remember. I think he's in the end of Bio. The... Is the one that takes place around the LA yeah. Observatory. I wonder if that's a Ray homage in a way too. I certainly didn't get that at the time. 
But if it takes place around Griffin Park and the sort of observatory, whether that's meant to uh, allude to rebel with Hedekas. Yeah, like he seems to wear his influence on his sleeve a bit with the directors in this and with the soundtrack too. And even the, I don't know if Zimmerman was called Zimmerman in the original books, but the Dylan connection and then all the kinks music. No, he actually wasn't called Zimmerman. I read that recently. I think his his name was like Trevani in the book. Was this a Dylan homage then? I think so. He never outright said it, but he specifically changed the name. I think that there's a lot of this film that could appeal to a contemporary audience because Mm -hmm. there's been a lot repeated from it, I think. Like, it was influenced by all these other things, but there's the Kink Mm -hmm. song that's in Rushmore later. There's the, I don't Mm -hmm. know if this was Hopper's homage to uh, Warhol, but on the pool table, the sort of selfie sash that he does. Oh, yeah. I guess that's about the uncertainty of his identity and his imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. where he fits in the world, partially, which is also very Warholian. But like the sort of the tear on his chin and the tear running down his eye while he's like lying on the pool table is so interesting and well shot. So one of mm-hmm. the maybe the tightest shots of a face in the film, as far as I can remember. Yeah, he definitely never, not never, but he rarely does close-up shots they especially with vendors that was their thing they like to shoot with a wider lens so when there is a close-up it's for a specific reason yeah as opposed to just being like i'm just gonna do close-ups because this person's talking hopper's not crying enough we've got to go in real tight if the audience is gonna notice (laughs) he's not sobbing so we got to get that solo tear. <laughs> I would love to see an alternate take of that scene where he's just absolutely sobbing, taking Polaroids of himself and then lying down <laughs> on the pool table. That would be very Frank Booth of him. This is pretty Frank Booth, but... Big stepping stone to that role, I think, this one. I could go on about Hopper and his character choices throughout his career, but I'll save it. Uh, I I mentioned the soundtrack. I also really liked the score to it. Mm -hmm. And I felt like there were a couple moments that fit into the contrasts and juxtapositions of, you know, we were talking about extrovert, introvert, hot and cold colors. There were a couple small pieces in the score where the first one I noticed was, I think, uh, that reminded me of Stereo Lab a bit, sort of maybe circa like Sound Dust or something. But it had that very kind of staccato precise harpsichord with this flute on top of the sort of the two characters in a way and later there was a violin or a viola over a piano this time but very staccato as well and i thought that those pieces fit in with the other elements of the film in a really good way i think it fits in with like again the noir of it and the uncertainty Mm -hmm. of you never know what's kind of gonna happen next without it being too over dramatic and being like okay this is how you should feel at this moment it's sort of leading you without forcing your hand which is like the perfect type of score sometimes the score does need to evoke emotion but this is just kind of like matching the vibes absolutely the scene yeah the the film as a whole feels very kind of uh the elements of the film at least feel harmonious there's tension within that i think on purpose for thematic Mm -hmm. and plot reasons where things are 
brushing up against each other. But as far as the different elements of the film, the score, the soundtrack, the cinematography, the acting, the editing, nothing mm-hmm. really sticks out in a bad way, I think. I, I, I think it's... No of one piece in a way that's very effective and to the credit of everyone involved that they're working well as a team or that the final product is sort of this the final piece is this thing that is one whole that's you know a sign of a good director in a sense because he's the leader of the whole yeah team, absolutely so credits to him but everyone maybe i should should really try his later work more or watch more by him but i i haven't honestly found a lot that i love from him this no. in Paris, Texas. I mean, I, I haven't seen anything from before this, but I really okay. didn't like Wings of Desire uh, for no. whatever reason. And uh, the later stuff, there hasn't been much that has interested me, but I, I should maybe get more into it because this is such a great film. It's weird because, I mean, I am a big fan of his work, but this one is very different. So I could see this being like the one for you and the other one's not because the other ones are not, I don't know, there's, as much as I love them, there is, there's something that doesn't, that's missing from this one. You know, it's not, and it, that is missing from even like the Paris, Texas and why these are the two big ones. Although Wings of Desire is big and Kings of the Road, Alice in the Cities is big, but they're not, they're not Paris, Texas, you know, they're not the American friend. I don't know if that's maybe because they're shot in color. I don't think so. But it's just something story-wise that melds better than the other mm. ones, I think, as much as I love the other ones. That's for the that's for the eventual vendors month. <laughs> I'd love to get into the last segment here, the end credits, because there's something that you mentioned that ties it into this. So the first question is, if someone comes up to you and is like, hey, Peter, I've never seen a film that Robbie Mueller's worked on, I'm kind of getting interested in his stuff, or I've heard about him. Would you recommend they start with The American Friend? If so, why? And if not, which of his films would you recommend as a starter point? So with the qualification that I really don't know that much about him, and I think I've seen, I don't know, less than half a dozen of his films. I, I do think that this is, I would say that, this seems to be maybe his breakout film uh, mm-hmm. in a way. And that I think it accomplishes a lot of the goals of good cinematography. So in that sense, yes, absolutely. And is a good and enjoyable and accessible, I would say, in my opinion, film, yeah. period. And is entertaining and doesn't have too much trom trom in it. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would absolutely. No, that's a that's a good answer. Yeah, it's it's interesting with this question when we're talking about cinematographers because it's you're dealing with as much as he's worked with the same directors multiple times, it's still different directors, and you have to take that into account. Uh, so it's usually just a personal personal preference. But I would agree. I would say either this or Paris, Texas would be the great starting points. And if you like that visual yeah. style then you can go from there and you can tackle the black yeah, and white. Yeah, maybe some of his black and white work, I'd say. Maybe he did coffee and cigarettes, right, too? Yeah. Yeah, maybe that. Any Jarmusch for me. I Again, I'm, I'm a huge Jarmusch fan, so I'd recommend any of his films. But I think we agree on the first question. The second one is the double bill question. So if you're building a double bill either for yourself, for someone else, what film are you pairing this with? Noting that... Sometimes you're making a double bill that to suit a certain 
you know, vibe that you're going for, or you're trying to pair it with something that's very similar or go opposite. So shoot me with any of the movies you'd pair this There's, with. You could almost do a festival of double bills with this, yeah. I think, <laughs> where you do it with a fuller, uh, maybe make a kiss. You do it with, uh, mm-hmm. if I was doing it with a Ray, which Ray would I do it with? Maybe, I mean, I, there's so many of his films I love. Maybe Lusty Men. Okay. Because it's got that seemingly asymmetrical kind of male friendship element to it. Mm-hmm. Um, although I guess there's I also a bit of that in Bigger Than Life and a lot of his films, uh, Rebel. And then you could do it with a Ripley film. Uh, I like the talented Mr. Ripley, the Matt Damon one, but Ripley's game would sort of make sense with Malkovich because a lot of it, this one takes elements, I think, of a couple Ripley books and Ripley's game is more just straight up Ripley's Mm -hmm. games. But you could do that. Um, You could do it with another Vendors. You could do it with another Neo-Noir. I mean, this and the long goodbye Mm -hmm. wouldn't be the worst. Yeah. Also, I mentioned Christopher Doyle before. So, like, I think that this and Chunking Express would be Mm -hmm. a really great uh, double bill. Maybe that's, if I'm only allowed to answer one, then maybe that's what I'd settle on. I'd I'd go American Friend and Chunking Express. They've both got the sort of greens and reds on screen. They're both romantic Mm -hmm. in a way, shot at night. They've got these great American pop songs on the soundtrack narrative momentum yeah you don't want something too long or kind of ponderous in a double bill mm-hmm. i don't think on either film so yeah i'll I'll choose that i guess um what i came up with were two different i went with two french noirs okay. i don't know why those are the two that came up in my mind so the first was the melville the red circle I seen that one. it's very it's much quieter and melville stuff can be quiet but this one's particularly quiet without it feeling like you don't know what's happening. It needs to be quiet because they're conducting a mm-hmm. heist. <laughs> so it makes sense. But it's the tension and the relationships between the characters that I think mirror this mm-hmm. as well. So it's just those male relationships. Yep. And if you want to go that way. The other one I thought of, and it just was randomly, was Godard's Alphaville. Okay, interesting. Because you kind of got that character who you're not really sure what his deal is. And it's the same with Ripley, where you're not totally sure what his deal is even if you have seen what i love about the hopper performance not to keep harping on it is because especially if you have seen the other ripley's you kind of know what ripley is about but the way he plays it you don't really know what he's so if we could rewrite the tagline for the poster would it just be what's his deal question mark yeah yeah what's up with this guy (laughs) those would be the ones just if you want to go with the crime mm-hmm. noir route but i love i love the chunking express because like you said what i love about that double bill would be the music also and just having the american friend at times yes can be funny but it's not fun uh <laughs> per se it's not a fun movie chunking express is a bit more fun but it's not also just like a straight-up comedy you know there's those the melding of genres for both dennis hopper's got that fun element to him i think though in this film where he's gonna live his life and do what he wants and i think sometimes he doesn't understand why people won't participate in his capers with them and stuff and it almost Mm -hmm. reminds me of Nicolas cage and face off where (laughs) he's like yeah 
I shot your son, but it wasn't on purpose. And like, why are you taking this so seriously? Like I, I could see Ripley in this almost saying the same thing where, or like, he's like, yeah, I was upset because you wouldn't shake my hand or whatever. That's a bit of an incoherent yeah. thought. Sorry. But there, I, I do think that there's quite a fun element to Hopper's performance. There is. And there is a part that I did want, and I forgot to mention, it's just like that classic Dennis Hopper laugh mm-hmm. where he has that, that weird like chuckle mm-hmm. that he does. And it's he'll say something serious like, oh, well, you didn't shake my hand and you insulted me. And you're like, oh, is this guy going to snap? But then he laughs and you're like, okay, I guess he's not that mad at and then, uh Bruno Gantz's uneasy laugh and the way his eyes yeah. move around is so good. Yeah, they're, they're such a great, it is almost like a buddy comedy in some ways, the performances. Oh, yeah. Such a great pair. I think so. I think so. And I think they did a good job. And it's great that they managed to resolve whatever differences they had over drinks. But I think that's the American friend. I think Perfect. we we touched upon the stuff that needs to be as with all films, we can talk about it. Ad nauseum. You just got to watch it. You know, just watch it. You got to watch it. Uh, I hope I hope that you've seen it if you made it this far. And if not, definitely go watch it. And if you have seen it, hopefully you rewatch it. Because as we've mentioned, it's a very rewatchable Absolutely. film. Thank you so much, Peter, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks for it. having me on. It's been a blast. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, intro music by Lamar Walker, and additional help from Dara McGrath. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on Paris, Texas. 